Assalamu alaikum, dear listeners. Peace be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of Sisters on Air, a women's show on the Voice of Islam radio station. We engage in a variety of discussions relating to women's experiences, drawing particular attention to Islamic viewpoints. We aim to demystify common misconceptions of Islam and to elucidate the role that Islam plays in the lives of Muslim women across the globe. Today, there's a rising appetite among women to find spaces where their voices, needs, views and experiences are heard and respected. These include in-person environments, as well as the virtual spaces which have transformed the nature and speed of our interactions over the last decade. Our central theme for today is safe spaces, a concept which has been quickly gaining ground worldwide. Leading women's NGOs, UN agencies, policymakers, activists and other organisations have been developing and evaluating strategies to create safer spaces for females. But does this talk of women's protection and empowerment translate into reality or does it remain mere rhetoric? These new programmes and agendas for change come at a time when statistics expose the disquieting extent of female harassment in both domestic and public contexts. And yet it seems that they are often met with condescension and this only goes on to further demoralise women. Whilst a lot of progress over the last century has of course been made vis-à-vis women's status in society, the hard truth is that there still are numerous obstacles hindering women from living in dignity and fulfilling their full potential. However, all is not lost, as there is one effective remedy for constructing and promoting safe spaces. This remedy is Islam, a faith which goes above and beyond worldly organisations to ensure women's physical, mental and spiritual security. A woman's role is something which beyond mere recognition is actively appreciated and supported in Islam. Women are as vital to society as the flora are to our ecosystems. Without us, civilizations cannot flourish. There isn't any need for contemporary advocacy work, rights campaigns or activism, some of which occasionally opt for more disruptive tactics which end up being counterproductive. Today we're going to discuss why there suddenly seems to be a demand for safe spaces in secular society, what safe spaces look like from an Islamic angle, and thirdly, the values underpinning them, will also reflect on women's safety online. I'm delighted to be joined by my studio guests, Anne-Marie Ionescu and Anila Tolakdar. Anne-Marie is a junior doctor working in the UK and a mother of two. Anila has a master's in chemistry and after working in science for a few years, trained to be a teacher. Currently, she is working in a primary school. Assalamu alaikum, ladies, and a warm welcome to you both. Wa alaikum salam. So, before we kick off our discussion, I think we need to highlight first how societies across the globe lack adequate safe spaces for women. Some of us may have heard about experiences of mistreatment from female colleagues or friends, and many of us will have seen increasingly in the media that this can be physical, emotional, and or verbal. A surge of social media movements has also sprung forth in this climate of anxiety and consciousness raising, some of which have shed light on abuse in a range of the world's biggest industries and corporations. 
Misogynistic behavioural patterns are manifesting in every stratum of society, including our structures of power. Sarah Everard's, Sabina Nessa's and most recently Zara Alina's names are wretched in our minds since their lives were tragically cut short in public spaces. In Sarah Everard's case last year, the perpetrator was a police officer, an individual who had once been entrusted to protect our public spaces, only to abuse his power by committing such an unconscionable crime. The scale of female harassment is further illustrated by troubling statistics. The APPG report for UN Women found that 71% of women of all ages in the UK have experienced some form of sexual harassment in a public space. Meanwhile, the UK's Trade Union Congress found that over one in two women have been harassed in the workplace. International studies provide more evidence suggesting that as many as 8 in 10 women have experienced workplace harassment. This can have serious professional, financial and psychological consequences. Frequently, non-disclosure acts are exploited to silence those who report incidents of harassment, which ultimately protect the wrong people. One sociology study found that when women worked in an environment with over 90% male workers, there was a 52% increase in the unpleasant feelings that they experienced. These figures are disturbing to say the least and paint a very, very bleak picture of society's moral condition. They raise a critical question. What is being done to improve our public spaces for women? Various campaigns have been launched in response to women's lack of safety in public, including the hashtag This Is Not Working campaign, launched by an alliance of trade unions, women's rights organisations, businesses and, and, and NGOs. The petition was started for the purpose of getting a preventative duty legislated and implemented in workplace settings so that they become safer. I've seen similar campaigns in the universities I've studied at which made me realise that even in academic environments, women don't always feel safe. Aside from legislative change, we see a booming demand for women-only spaces. This shows women are actively seeking out communities where they can work and socialise in environments that support their needs and sensitivities. Sadly, it seems that buses and trains are no safer than the workplace. I was reminded of Islam's wise teachings about restraining one's gaze and guarding one's private parts when recently travelling on the London Underground. I noticed a number of brightly coloured posters. These posters called out various inappropriate behaviours and emphasised that they would not be tolerated on London's transport. I was struck by how forthright some of these descriptions were, a little shocked even, that these actions needed to be explicitly spelt out as wrong. I realised that these behaviours must have become so normalised and I felt really grateful to have been born into a faith which teaches respectful, modest and dignified interactions between men and women. It was also the first time I'd seen intrusive staring denounced and this particularly made me think of the timeless Quranic commandment to lower our gazes. It's interesting to compare religious and secular methods for dealing with the same issue. Will brightly coloured posters, hashtag trends and minor legislative changes bring about durable change for women in public? Personally, I'd argue no, 
and that one of the main reasons there are so many unsafe spaces is due to the free intermixing of the genders. This view, informed by my faith and its associated concept of segregation, typically evokes a rather visceral reaction in Western society. However, I hope that any negative assumptions relating to segregation can be countered throughout today's show. So, I'd like to turn to our studio guests now. A distinctive feature of Islam, which I just mentioned, is segregation. Um, And to begin our discussion, Anila, could you perhaps elaborate on the interlinking religious and rational justifications for this practice? Uh, Yes, but before I start, I think it's important to just clarify again what segregation means in Islam, as the word often has negative connotations associated with it. Nadia, I remember that we recently researched this topic for a leaflet we made, and when I looked up segregation on Google, it came up with lots of images of racial segregation, which was obviously not a good thing and a form of Mm. oppression. So I can see why when first hearing this word, people are concerned. However, segregation in Islam means that men and women have Mm -hmm. separate spaces, hold separate events and socialise separately. And as you mentioned earlier, Nadia, many women are more comfortable when in women-only spaces and Islam has been at the forefront of acknowledging this. It's just a bit unfortunate that no one else has really cared until now. Yes, thank you very much for clarifying this as it is a really important term which will be coming up a lot in today's episode. No problem. Um, I also read a quote in the book um, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues and it said, according to Islam, women must be emancipated from exploitation and playing a role of being mere instruments of pleasure. I think women today are still suffering. The pressure to always look good, dress up, put on makeup hasn't gone away. In the entertainment industry, you hear and see many instances of women who are classed as too old and replaced by younger women who look good to ensure their audience stays. Islam has removed this factor, granting women equal rights to men and the ability to be seen for their abilities as opposed to their looks. Giving women their own space would enable this to happen more effectively. It's similar to the practice of veiling known as hijab. And what impact did these teachings have at the time when Islam was first introduced to the world? Well, at that time, treatment of women in Arabia and across the world was pretty awful. Um, They were treated like property, playthings, There are obviously some exceptions. However, women were being exploited. And to stop that and grant us the rights and respect that we deserve, the injunction of covering up and practice of hijab was given. The root of this instruction is to instill modesty from which the practice of segregation originates. Western society generally struggles with the concept of hijab and segregation of the sexes. Islam states that both men and women should be modest and act with propriety at all times and works on the basis of prevention is better than cure. Which, if we think about it, isn't that the stance we take when, for example, dealing with medical problems? We try to catch things early to prevent having to cure the disease when it is at its worst. Thus, segregation of the sexes is prescribed so that situations which cannot be controlled afterwards are not allowed to happen in the first place. And it safeguards us all from the ills that arise in society. Thank you. I think this medical analogy is very fitting. Um, I too was recently reading the book you mentioned by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community's fourth caliph, His Holiness Mirza Taho Ahmed. He has underlined that, quote, the health of a society should be judged by the same symptoms as the health of an individual. When someone is in pain, restless, abnormal or subnormal in his reactions, or when anxiety seems to displace one's content and peace of heart and mind, 
It does not require an exceptionally wise man or highly proficient physician to adjudge or diagnose such an unhealthy person as being seriously ill. All these symptoms are manifest in contemporary society. Amory, what would you consider to be these, quote, symptoms in relation to today's topic? Well, the statistics and advocacy campaigns you referenced earlier are, you know, symptomatic of an endemic problem and it debilitates society's health and peace. So, you know, Anila also emphasised the many struggles of women historically and even now. So it's no surprise, really, that secular and Christian societies are beginning to implement segregation, you know, a, a traditionally Islamic practice, by creating women's only safe spaces, um, by creating women's only spaces, designated safe spaces, you know, and that signals a commitment to providing women an environment where they are less vulnerable to hostility and maltreatment, essentially. Yeah. And these safe spaces have taken on a lot of different forms, including female-only festivals, gyms and rideshare apps. When researching the Islamic stance on any issue, naturally we looked at the conduct of the founder of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and he exemplified the divinely ordered ethics of Islam in every way, stating that good behaviour is half of faith. The promised Messiah, who established the Ahmadi Muslim community and revived Prophet Muhammad's peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, teachings, has commented, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, is the perfect example for us in every aspect of life. In my esteem, a man who stands up against a woman is a coward and not a man. If you study the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, you will find that he was so gracious that despite his station of dignity, he would stop even for an old woman and would not move on until she permitted him to do so. In light of this beautiful quotation, Anne-Marie, may I ask you how else Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, promoted women's safety and comfort? So the Prophet, peace be upon him, first and foremost uh, established the high spiritual status of women and specifically established that women are on equal par with men in terms of their spiritual and material status in this world. Um, the roles or jobs they, they perform may be slightly different, but this doesn't mean that they are of a different status to men. And this is fundamental in ensuring the safety of women because by changing the status, it means members of society, you know, namely men, cannot treat women as people that they can control and do with as they please. In Islam, women have been established from the start as, you know, individual spiritual beings who have fundamental rights ascribed to them. The safety and well-being of women stems from the perception of their status in society. So ultimately, by raising their status in society, women are given protections and freedoms that were otherwise not afforded to them prior to Islam. In addition to this, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, also established specific rights to women, some of which are clearly stated in the Quran. So, you know, the right to independent finances, um, you know, a woman's money is her money alone. So the right to an education, the right to choose her spouse, the right to divorce and so on. Mm. There's many of those. Mm. Um, all of these fundamental rights were key in developing a framework to ensure women are protected and also that they have options available to take themselves out of a difficult situation such as an abusive marriage. You know, if these rights were breached, then these men would have been held accountable. This was key during the 7th century Arabia 
but relevant even today, where women can be frequently disregarded, treated poorly and not offered, you know, even these fundamental rights. Mm, Totally. And how should wives and daughters be treated? So the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, established an example in himself about how women should be treated inside the family as both wife and daughter. Um, He showed in his own character that women as wives should be cared for and helped in their day-to-day activities. He showed in his character that he cared for and took particular care of his own daughters. And there are many narrations of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to his companions about how important it is to care for daughters. There are a few sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which I'd like to bring to light here. Um, So there is one in which it's narrated, he said, If anyone has a female child and does not bury her alive or slight her or prefer his male children to her, Allah will bring him into paradise. Another one in which it's narrated, he said, Whoever supports two girls till they attain maturity, he and I will come on the day of resurrection like this. Uh, And the messenger of uh, peace be upon him joined his fingers together to illustrate closeness. In another narration, it's related that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, Whoever Allah has given three daughters and he perseveres through raising them will have them as a shield for him from the hellfire on the day of resurrection. And in relation to his daughter Fatima, may God be pleased with her, it's narrated that when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, saw her coming, he would stand up for her, took her hand, kissed her and brought her to sit in his place. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, visited her, she would stand up for him, take his hand, kiss him and brought him to sit in her place. Thank you. These are such lovely narrations. And I'd now like to shift our discussion to the male gaze. Amory, please may you begin by explaining what this actually means. So in Islam, the male gaze is generally understood to mean the lustful glances of, um, of the eye of a male. But this has also been interpreted to mean any glance made at the opposite gender. So in some Islamic cultures around the world, you know, a man looking at a woman directly in the eye, whether lustful or not, is seen as crude or disrespectful to her. However, in other cultures, it's it's simply the lustful gaze that is seen as disrespectful. We know from the character and practice of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that he would infrequently look at anyone directly in the eye, whether a male companion or otherwise. But generally, it's taken to mean the lustful glance of a male. Uh, In a number of his writings, the the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, has linked the unrestrained male gaze to various vices, including promiscuity and succumbing to base inclinations. He has explained that God has provided mankind five remedies to safeguard themselves against unchastity. The first is restraining one's eyes. And he states, As God Almighty desires that our eyes and hearts and all our limbs and our susceptibilities should remain pure, he has furnished us with this excellent teaching. The purpose of these regulations is to restrain men and women from letting their eyes rove freely and from displaying their beauty and charm, for this is to the benefit of both men and women. So this shows that not lowering the gaze is problematic because a woman is essentially objectified, and this in turn prevents a person from becoming pious by keeping their heart impure. Um, Lowering the gaze is what the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, defines as a blessed habit 
through which a person's natural impulses are transferred into a high moral condition without adversely affecting his social needs. This is the quality in Islam which is called ihsan or chastity. Thanks, Amory. So how is it that the male gaze is causing a lot of societal maladies? Well, in my view, it, you know, it has two broad applications in society currently. Uh, one is the lustful glance in public and the other is lustful glances in private. Um, so both compromise the Islamic qualities of chastity and modesty. You know, on the one hand, you have the lustful gaze in public through which a woman is objectified and only valued by her appearance. On the other hand, a lustful gazing in private, you know, for example, the consumption of pornography um, is known to be significantly damaging to both men and women. And that's what specifically, you know, the lustful gazing in private is really pointing towards. You know, many studies indicate that pornography leads to unhealthy relationships with women and leads to unrealistic expectations when a permanent relationship is established. Uh, men uh, basically develop a very skewed sense of women's bodies and behavior in this regard. It's also hugely objectifying to women in which, you know, this industry only values women for their sexual attractiveness and also furthers the toxic notion that their sole purpose is for pleasing men, which is, you know, antithetical to the true purpose of women. Mm -hmm. And what does the Quran say about the gays in order to protect women? Um, well, in, in short, because the male gaze objectifies, you know, even unconsciously women, the Quran has stipulated the guidance um, to which men and women should follow to allow societal peace. So for men, uh, the Holy Quran in chapter 24 instructs them to lower their gaze and guard their private parts. And for women, it equally instructs them to lower their gaze and to guard their private parts, in addition to drawing their loose outer coverings to cover themselves. In essence, God instructs men to control their gaze, which will then help them in their efforts to control their sexual desires and so guard their private parts. Because the male gaze is directly associated with a woman's objectification, this Islamic command is directing men to not objectify her and is instructing women to recognize that men may objectify them. So if men don't control their gaze, then women can still actively counteract this behavior by dressing modestly and thus, you know, prevent their own objectification um, before also being uh, instructed to control their own gaze and guard their sexual desires. So the Quran ties closely the idea that the male gaze can ultimately lead to the objectification of a woman should she also not take care to safeguard her dignity and play her part in the interaction according to Islamic teachings. Um, both men and women are regarded to play their part and Islam's instructions are not at all one-sided. Um, this is despite what outwardly might seem a different case to non-Muslims where you know the hijab makes it appear that the burden of responsibility lies with the woman. But in fact, the Quran first lays emphasis on men's responsibility to control their gaze before addressing the issue of modest dress in women. Um, and so this purifies intentions, promotes mental chastity, chastity, and as a result, protects physical chastity too. Yeah, and I, I think it's definitely worth noting here that the instruction is to men first. And this is something that shows that the Quran is cognizant of the male and female psyche. And it links back to the wisdom behind segregation we discussed earlier too. 
So are there any uh, non-religious segregated settings you've come across, even if not explicitly labelled as such? So, you know, segregation has long existed in other forms in the West too. Uh, It's not just limited to Islam. For example, bathrooms and changing rooms. You know, in these scenarios, the innate tendency for both genders to seek both privacy and comfort from the opposite gender is recognised. The author and national spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya community's American press office, Harris Zuffer, makes an interesting distinction between privacy and comfort while maintaining the importance of both. He says that if privacy was the only concern in these contexts, then there wouldn't actually be a need for separate bathrooms as individual stalls would hypothetically suffice. However, there is a virtually universal consensus that completely separate bathrooms and changing rooms, etc. are preferable because women naturally feel greater comfort among women as men do among men. This is an innate preference valued in Islam. And there are a number of female-only clubs, as mentioned uh, earlier, which have a very long waiting list currently. But thankfully, um, you know, I already have access to a female-only club, and that's through the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. (laughs) (laughs) Mashallah. So I have come across a company, actually, that has been opened by a fellow doctor in the UK, and uh, it focuses on providing UK households with, um, you know, all home maintenance services like plumbing and DIY Mm. tasks, but with a twist where all employees and contractors doing the work are women. Um, So this is a company specifically designed to supply only female engineers, plumbers, etc. to work in homes across the UK. Uh, And it's a very successful business. Yeah, I think that's a great initiative. And I really like the option of having handy women be able to come and enter into the privacy of, you know, your own home as well as handy men. Absolutely. Uh, And also, you know, gender separation is a norm in hospital wards, for example, um, though this is sometimes breached um, and wards can actually receive fines if they break this rule and mix genders. Interestingly, um, it was announced recently that a uh, trauma hospital would be opened in Australia in August 2022 for women only. Karen Williams, who's one of the doctors who initiated the facility, addressed accusations that the hospital was discriminating against male trauma victims. She concisely refuted this, emphasising that, quote, men are the most likely to have caused women's trauma. And in her years of experience, she said that she had never had to treat men who had been barred from leaving the home, who went into hiding to escape a woman, who hid that they were getting medical treatment or frozen in women's presence. Importantly, Dr Williams highlighted the need for sensitivity to the reality of the female experience. This experience can't be treated in a gender-blind manner, as denying the gender nuances of trauma is in fact more discriminatory and ends up being more harmful um, than by doing the opposite. Anne-Marie, do you know of any gender segregation in other faiths? I think we need to acknowledge that Islam isn't the only religion that has segregation of the sexes. So in Christianity and Buddhism, there are monks or nuns who have their own spaces. Um, I would assume that is to help them stay focused on their religious pursuits and that they're more comfortable in a single sex environment. In Judaism, observant Jewish women go to female only ritual bath centers once a month. And some Orthodox Jewish weddings are also generally segregated. Thank you, Amory. It really strikes me as a misconception that it's only Islam which promotes segregation. 
Um, arguably, it's just that Islam has preserved and practiced it best. Um, and Anila, can I ask you as well about your experiences in segregated environments in non-religious settings? Uh, well, I was actually fortunate enough to go to an all-girls secondary school. I know it has. I know it was definitely a great experience for me. Statistically, they say that girls who attend all-girls schools do better. And I actually read a a recent article on the top ten reasons to attend a girls' school. And reason number one stated that over 88% of students at girls' schools report that they are more comfortable being themselves at school, meaning they can focus their energies on their learning. There are a lot of other reasons mentioned as well, which I'd never thought of before. I mean, I went for religious reasons, not that it was a religious school, just that Islam advocates segregation of the sexes. But it's probably given me a lot of things in life that I wouldn't necessarily have had if I had gone to a co-ed school. I was allowed to be myself, I didn't hold myself back in my learning, because I was in a safe and comfortable environment, which probably helped my confidence to grow. It's been mentioned that in co-ed schools, they are more likely to encourage boys to pursue STEM subjects when they show an aptitude for it. But girls who have the same aptitude aren't always encouraged. Perhaps that's why I ended up doing a science degree. Um, I also know that the field of sports sometimes cater for ladies-only spaces. We used to go to ladies-only swimming sessions, which was quite nice. And it wasn't just Muslims there. Uh, in fact, I think at the pool we went to, we were the only Muslims in the mm. session. Um, I haven't been, but I know there are ladies-only gyms as well, I think was mentioned earlier. And more recently, although it was pre-COVID, through our religious community, I've attended ladies-only kickboxing and ladies-only badminton sessions. And actually at the sports hall for badminton, um, they had this really long partitioning curtain, which they drew across for us, which is something that they already had installed. It's not something we... Um, requested we just know, knew that they had it so it's not just for Muslim women there are other people who like to practice sports and privacy too I guess mm. Thank you Anila. I also went to a girls school and can definitely relate to a lot of what you were saying about how you felt and how it um, really aided you in your confidence um, mashallah. and another example for myself that I like to bring up is when I was a member of Girl Guiding UK when I was younger um, and I really enjoyed being a girl guide learning a range of domestic, team building and survival skills alongside my female peers. Mm -hmm. Ever since it was founded in 1909, um, it has opted to stay a girls-only organisation, which is definitely worth noting. Now, considering the current rise in female-only spaces, Anila, what do you think explains this? Well, I think with growing concerns for safety of women in today's society, more and more women's-only spaces are being opened. I know in some countries they have women-only spaces on public transport. I was lucky enough to go to travel to Japan and they have women-only carriages, which is great because I've read that the number of women who are often sexually harassed on public transport is quite high. And you mentioned earlier, Nadia, that the London Underground has posters up condemning mm -hmm. various acts of harassment. I'm not sure how effective it's been, but it's nice to know that some countries are taking it a bit more seriously. Also, I haven't experienced it yet, but now that I know about them, it's on my bucket list. Going to stay in a women's only resort. It sounds really great to me, actually. <laughs> yeah, and me too. It's definitely on my bucket list as well. Um, now, there's a prevalent misconception in Western media that Muslim women aren't allowed out of their homes and segregation is a tool of oppression. Regrettably, the actions of men in a number of Muslim-majority states are feeding these misunderstandings. So how would you respond to this view? Well, it's difficult to combat this view because, as you've said, sadly, a lot of Muslim-majority countries don't follow the true Islamic teachings. 
there are many Muslims in the world practicing Islam the way they think is correct or the way they've been told is correct. I think when this view is expressed, it's imperative to educate the person on the true teachings of Islam, find evidence that proves otherwise. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Holy Quran doesn't say anything about women having to stay at home. I feel like I would have remembered that part. There is a verse that tells women to stay in their homes with dignity, but it is important that this is not taken out of context. If you read the commentary for this verse, it states that the principal sphere of the activities of a woman is her house, not that she's not allowed to leave its four walls. And it says that she may go out as many times as she wants or needs to, as long as she is practicing hijab. I was actually talking to my cousin about this not too long ago, and she pointed out that if Muslim women were supposed to stay at home, then why would we be commanded to cover up before leaving the house? The idea that a woman should not leave the home is really a direct contradiction to the revelation about covering up, which says that women should wear loose outer coverings when leaving their home so that they can be distinguished. So I guess that's one way of tackling it. Yeah, that's a great point, and I'd never actually thought about it that way before. Neither had I. Um, I would also mention how the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was a huge advocate of women's rights, which Anne-Marie talked about earlier. We know he encouraged all Muslims, em emphasis on all, women included, to seek knowledge, even if they had to go as far as China, which at the time was a very difficult journey to make. But my main point here is that to get to China, one would have to leave the house. When it comes to Muslim-majority countries, I think we should keep in mind that like all countries, the people running them have their own personal interests. It's not like the leader is a Muslim, therefore everything that they do will be according to Islam. Um, I mean, we can use our own country as an example. We only recently had new rules brought in by our government when COVID-19 initially hit us. So many rules and regulations were put in place, which was extremely difficult, especially for those who lost loved ones during this time and weren't able to see them in their last days. Yet we have recently been witness to the people in power, government officials, the ones who made these rules, not following the rules they made everyone else abide by. It's no different in other countries and other governments. I feel like I've digressed a bit here. But basically, I would tell them that it's not an Islamic thing. We know that historically, Islam is the religion that has championed women's rights. It states absolutely in the Holy Quran that we are created from a single being and have been granted a status equal to men. I know the rest of the world is slowly trying to catch up, but we are still fighting for women's rights in the West today. Men often get paid more than women, are preferred when it comes to jobs purely because of their gender. Not sure why, as I'm pretty sure women are more organised generally. <laughs> so it's not just Muslim-majority countries that try to oppress women. It can be found across the world in various ways. Yes, that is unfortunately very true, but important to recognise. Thank you, Anila. It's now time for a short break, but do stay tuned, please, as we will be resuming our discussions very soon. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, said, Allah will cover up the faults on the Day of Judgment of him who covers up the faults of another in this world. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to today's episode of Sisters on Air. 
The availability of safe spaces is crucial for women's empowerment and for creating a harmonious society. At the end of the day, we do make up half the world's population. Nevertheless, statistics underline that much of this vital segment of the population face a myriad of injustices on a daily basis in both domestic and public contexts. In Islam, great importance is attached to the family. From an Islamic perspective, how is the protection of the family unit linked to the maintenance of safe spaces for women? So in Islam, romantic relationships outside of marriage are discouraged, and this is because they undermine the family unit in which stability is needed to create the right environment for raising children. Uh, spaces which are mixed and frequently involve the consumption of alcohol in the West undermine the family unit structure, since women are led to believe that their freedom comes in the form of sexual freedom. Um, they are told by the dominating norms of Western society that having multiple relationships with men without the responsibilities that tie men down to a relationship, i.e. marriage, is freedom, when it's in fact quite far from it, actually. Um, these so-called liberties have catalyzed you know, the rise in broken homes where families are not bonded together by strong moral values, you know, honoring the sanctity of marriage and the family unit. Free mixing, which runs counter to the concept of modesty, endangers men and women, not just physically, but spiritually as well, you know, as, as well as endangering the future generations born into such environments. Marriage legally binds a man to responsibility towards his wife and any children that may come from that relationship. It's an expression of commitment which makes him accountable. And not recognizing this means women are at risk of being waylaid by their partners. And this is actually a relatively new culture change, which would have otherwise been seen as completely unacceptable in the UK prior to the 1910s. Yeah, it's quite interesting that this is a relatively um, recent um, phenomenon. Um, and you've also mentioned accountability here. Um, so could you tell us a bit about the significance of accountability in Islam? So as Muslims, it's worth stressing that, you know, we believe that we're answerable to God for all of our actions. And this sense of accountability motivates believers to behave in the best manner, as well as think pure thoughts. Um, and this is because God states in the Quran, and I quote, Verily the ear and the eye and the heart, all these shall be called to account. So by discouraging us from not looking at, thinking of or listening to anything inappropriate, this cuts directly at the source of misconduct. In secular settings, criminal offences can't be entirely monitored. So the police, judges, lawyers and surveillance methods are all limited. And this is corroborated by the fact that many incidences of harassment in public spaces go unreported. God, however, is the all aware. For Muslims, our fundamental purpose in this world is to gain God's nearness and love. So we constantly strive to purify our thoughts and actions for advancing our spiritual self, of which a natural outcome is a harmonious society. Going back to the importance of family, um, women are in fact now vulnerable to being used and dropped or engage in fruitless relationships late into their prime years, at which point they do in fact want to settle down and start a family. Most women will experience this desire to settle down and start a family in their late 20s to early 30s. And it's a natural desire that has come, you know, that has been with women for thousands of years. And we're not going to get rid of it, you know, or grow out of it anytime soon. Mm. 
Um, because of the prevalence of mixed social spaces in the West, which has resulted in a culture of laxity with the opposite gender, the commodification of women and casual relationships, people are you know, less interested in long-term relationships in the form of marriage. This directly undermines the family unit. And so alongside other factors has significantly contributed to the decline in birth rates in Europe and the West in general, simply because the family unit has been completely undermined through this change in culture over the last hundred years or so. And why are mothers in particular, given the important responsibility of their children's moral upbringing in Islam, and why is this also in the best interests of society? So, you know, a mother plays a key role in the moral upbringing of her children because she is the person who's most present in a child's early years. Whilst a child is little, they're dependent on their mothers for nursing needs as well as basically any other care needs they have. You know, there are several studies that show children who are placed in nursery care settings um, when the child when the child's age is less than three will have higher levels of the stress hormone circulating in their bodies. Being at home in an environment where they are with family and their primary caregiver uh, from birth, i.e. their mother, makes them feel less anxious and thus will be better able to learn from their environment. Other studies indicate even in adulthood, you know, we learn much less when under stress uh, and also make more mistakes when we're in a, a stressful environment. Moral training is tied in with our fundamental beliefs that are carried with us into adulthood and form the very basis of society later in life. So the morals that we learn in childhood are key to establishing a stable and peaceful society set on the right track socially, economically, as well as intellectually in the future. An unstable living environment where the morals learned by the child are toxic will lead to adults who will have social or psychological problems and can't function as productively in society later on in their life. So moral training is key to mental stability and spiritual strength later in life. And these are really key to societal productivity and stability overall. So it's in everyone's interest, both individually and on a communal level, that children have a strong moral foundation. Thanks, Amory. I feel it's worth adding here that tackling discriminatory gender norms and internalised misogyny requires everyone to have a good upbringing, just as you described, and a strong moral foundation, and changes must be made within us as well as as a collective whole. Yes, and going back to Islam's response to contemporary issues, I find the following quote quite interesting, where His Holiness cited of Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, as related in Matthew, um, quote, by their fruits you will recognise them. Never do people gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, do they? Likewise, every good tree bears fine fruit, but every rotten tree produces worthless fruit. A good tree cannot bear worthless fruit, neither can a rotten tree produce fine fruit. Um, I think this analogy shows how society is recognising its own moral decline, but rather than fixing it by going to the root of the problem, i.e. the roots of the tree, they are trying to salvage and manage the worthless fruit that has been produced. In order to reform and protect our society's moral constitution, the evils which endanger women's safety need to be completely uprooted and replaced with a new tree, one that embodies Islamic social order. Yep, and higher morals are prerequisites for a stable, safe and successful society, which is, again, why mothers have a huge responsibility to instil these in their children.
I'd now like to talk about the first auxiliary organisation of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Lajna Amaila, which is for females over the age of 15. Lajna manage all their own affairs and programmes. Anila, can you share with us your experiences of segregation as a Lajna member? Yes, personally, I feel that Lajna Amaila has helped me in so many ways. I've experienced a lot and learned so many different skills through being a member. I think my first experience was probably before I was a Lajna as a Nasrath, which is who they are girls aged between 7 to 14. Um, annual competitions are held locally, regionally and nationally, which when you're a child, most parents encourage you to participate in. Whilst it can be daunting at first due to public speaking, because you end up reciting the Holy Quran, a poem or giving a speech every year, you tend to not be as reluctant to speak in front of people. It may not seem like it now because here I am talking on radio, but I was actually quite shy and lacking in confidence when I was younger. Personally, I still don't feel that confident, but because I practically spent my whole life doing some form of public speaking in a group setting, I'm more able to do it now. I've had to deliver presentations to hundreds of people, hold training sessions and organise events. I've also attended various training programmes, um, been part of multiple teams and learnt, learnt a lot of new skills. So really, my experience of segregation as a member of Lejno Myla has been pretty empowering. It's actually enabled me to do so many things that I ordinarily would never have had the chance to experience. or And it's also given me exposure to certain things in a comfortable setting before mm. I had to do them in the wider world, like public speaking. Mm. Thank you. That's really wonderful to hear. And being a Lajna member myself has boosted my own confidence too. Amory, I understand you have a unique and valuable perspective on the subject, um, having experienced different religious environments. Would you be happy to share your insights? Yeah, so coming from a Western and non-Muslim upbringing, at first I found gendered separate spaces very unfamiliar and strange mm. in many respects. Um, I've now come to appreciate the need for them, being myself a modestly dressed or hijab-wearing woman. So having gender-specific spaces means that I can relax around women without the need to wear my head covering and better network with them as I'm generally more relaxed. During weddings, which are usually separated, it allows me to again remove my headscarf and, you know, just relax uh, overall, uh, where otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, other events, such as those which occur in the mosque, um, you know, where there are separate men's and women's spaces to pray, are really crucial to allow us to concentrate on developing our relationship with God. Um, I think the West feels it's outgrown this idea that men and women distract each other. Um, but this is in fact a reality of day-to-day -day life. There are many psychology-based studies that show you know, men, men more than women actually are distracted by the opposite gender, as highlighted um, by studies that indicate men perform more poorly in memory tests. Um, and so when you're in a place of worship where you're trying to concentrate on the divine, then it becomes really important to limit these distractions. Um, and this likewise can uh, include mother and child separate spaces to allow other women to pray quietly. Uh, I remember personally in my youth when I used to attend my local church for mass and I could see members of the congregation looking around, you know, clearly distracted by other members that they liked. Um, and it, it 
you know, and then you'd notice other people within the congregation as well, kind of staring at you or again, staring at other people it just makes you feel uncomfortable. So gender uh, segregated spaces in specific situations are very much needed to focus on, you know, why you're actually there. Mm. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It, it's really interesting to hear a comparative um, perspective. There's another specific example proving women's only spaces aren't exclusionary or disempowering called the Jalsa Solana. It's the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya community. Anila, please could you tell us a little bit more about this? So our annual convention takes place in a field um, every year, much like a festival, I guess. The site has to be set up and taken down again with a short, within a short amount of time. The main area of the site itself is split into a men's side and a women's side, which are basically mirror images of each other. The women's side is managed and run by Lajnai Myla through our national president. Just like the site is mirrored, the departments are also mirrored, with women having their own teams for first aid, security, registration, dining marquees at the all-important tea stall, and, <laughs> and site safety, um, and m- many more. Having our own departments means we have women from all different backgrounds in our teams. We have qualified doctors working in our first aid team, women drivers for transportation via buggy for the disabled and elderly, Before the actual event, we hold training sessions where where needed. I'm part of the site safety team, so I know personally I've had fire training, um, I've attended a food health and safety course. I mean, these things alone are pretty empowering. The knowledge I've gained through this is immense. Also, contrary to the stereotype, the men are are the ones who cook at Jalsa Salana, and the kitchen is run by them, and they deliver food to the women's side. They also come around in their vans to collect the rubbish bags on our side. So we're in charge of our own part of the site. That's not to say that sometimes we don't need to liaise with the men's side. Our national president, who is in charge of our side, attends important meetings and liaises with the men's teams if needed. Sometimes they may need to enter the ladies' site for deliveries of food or fences or other things. Sometimes we need to call in plumbers or electricians or other people who are qualified and happen to be men. But if they need to enter to check something or help with something, they wait to be escorted by our team. This ensures a feeling of safety for all women. We wait for them by the entrance and take them to the problem, then escort them out. If any male was to wander around, they would be questioned as to why they were there. You talked in an earlier question about the male gaze, which I think is something that should be remembered here too. The men's teams know of this teaching and hence would be practicing it if they needed to enter our side. All these things I feel prove how much responsibility we have. Besides the organisation side, um, we also hold our own programmes. So the Saturday morning of the annual convention is known as the Ladies' Day. Um, And the morning session is filled with female speakers talking on important topics. And the morning ends with our beloved leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, visiting our site and addressing us. This address is transmitted to the men as well. So they are listening to the same address being given to us. I think it's safe to say that in no way are women being excluded at Jalsa Salana. We in fact, we are in fact empowered as we get training and perform duties and organise our own side. Even if you're not doing a duty, you can enjoy the day in comfort and safety amongst friends. Definitely. Thank you, Anila. That was a great overview and hearing this has made me feel all the more excited for this <laughs> year's Jalsa in August, God willing. And while we talk about safe spaces, it would be remiss of us not to mention the internet. No doubt the internet is a very valuable resource in many ways, but it's also a dangerous space for many. 
Amory, why is the internet causing disproportionate harm to women and girls? I mean, unfortunately, with time, the internet in its uncontrolled raw form has been used to manipulate what the public sees as important and worthwhile. Um, What is usually seen in person in the public sphere becomes exaggerated online. So social media platforms are designed to paint a very specific image of whatever it is the presenter wants you to see. You don't see the work behind the image. You don't see the, quote, you know, normal day of an Instagram influencer, for example. Everything is picture perfect and highly controlled, highly tweaked and highly manipulated. Social media shows materialism, but, you know, on steroids. Mm -hmm. So often millionaires would have, you know, had a lot of their wealth hidden and their lifestyle kept private previously. But now on social media, you know, it's provided a platform to expose their wealth and lifestyle uh, of essentially extremely wealthy individuals that would have otherwise been mostly kept out of public sight. Um, Much of this now is available, you know, only from a few touches of your smartphone. Um, materialism is the ghost that makes that mankind chases continuously and many of our youth are drawn to such images and influences on social media you know they're drawn by the material desires presented to them and drawn to what they are told is beautiful and what will give them success and attention and fame etc it lays bare the diminishing value of religion, which transcends any of these worldly yardsticks of achievement people chase after. Um, you know, many young girls and women are particularly susceptible to influencers portraying what their standards of beauty are, which are far flung from the emphasis mm. in Islam, which you know regards the inner beauty and strength of moral character as much more important than the kind of material and outer beauty of a person. Many young girls don't see um, the superficiality of these influencers who have little else to offer other than their looks. Um, So Islam beckons women and mankind to a higher calling um, that is greater than their superficial, you know, playthings and uh, material desires, which ultimately don't last the test of time. What does last the test of time, however, is, you know, strength of moral character and confidence in your own abilities. And this strength can only truly be drawn through your relationship with the creator. Only through this strength can you remain steadfast in the face of hardship. And hardship you will feel in this life. Mm -hmm. No one is free from hardship. Anila, how do you think women and men can best use and navigate virtual spaces so that, you know, they're safer for everyone? Well, I think it was um, the head of our community, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, who said that we need to treat virtual spaces as if we were out in public. People are so comfortable online um, because it's anonymous and there's very little accountability. When we're out and about, we don't really talk to strangers, much less tell them all our life's details. Mm. It's important to remember this whilst online. Unless you know the person, I'm going to phrase it as in real life, but you shouldn't disclose personal things. We don't know what hidden agendas people could have. We do know that the online community can be a harsh place. There are some people in the world who want to bring misfortune to others, and due to the anonymity of being online, some find it easier to attack others in this medium. Even with privacy settings in place, you never know who could have access to your account. Going back to the guidance given by our beloved Caliph in the book Social Media, which is compiled from extracts of addresses given by our Caliph, his Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed, 
It says that men and women should not talk through social media as they end up forming connections and can get carried away with their emotions. So Islam's teaching of segregation of the sexes should extend to the virtual world and as Muslims, we should be just as vigilant online as we are in the real world. Thank you, um, Anila. I think that's a really important point that the segregation is something that extends beyond, as you put it, the real world. Um, and for our listeners, I think it's also worth mentioning that this book um, by our current caliph is publicly available on alislam.org, and I would definitely um, recommend a little read through that. Now, we've almost reached the end of today's show, having explored how Islam provides women safe spaces where they can flourish without social forces or vices interfering. Muslim women can express themselves without fear or intimidation. They're safeguarded from pressures to modify their bodies and behaviours, meaning that they can confidently exist and thrive in their own skin. The current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmed, has emphasised that only recently secular nations have begun raising their voices in support of women's rights. Contrastingly, Islam raised its voice 1400 years ago, as the caliph explained, and I quote, A Muslim woman can never say that women's rights organisations have played any role in aiding her liberation, her freedom and her rights. In the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty has given Muslims certain teachings and has established the rights of every classification and grouping of people in minute detail. Nobody can match these teachings, neither any law, government, nor any lawmaker. Neither has any constitution nor anyone else ever perceived this issue in the manner that the Holy Quran and Islam have. End quote. On that note, I'd like to thank today's studio guests, Anne-Marie and Anila, for joining me. This has been Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam Radio, produced by Mrs. Sharmeen Butt. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>